The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. All of this current season on Art Curious, I have been declaring that we should chercher la femme, find the woman. Find the woman who is there behind the scenes, waiting in the wings. The woman who has made a big difference in an artist's life and career. The mother who sat patiently for her portrait to be painted. The widow who believed in her brother-in-law's artwork. The gallerist who stood on the margins of society to promote the work that she loved. And then, there are the collectors. Oftentimes, art collectors end up making an artist's career. Collectors drive the value of artworks up and down. They urge others to purchase works or to avoid a particular artist or style or exhibition altogether. And sometimes, they help make art happen by encouraging the right people at the right time. In Paris at the beginning of the 20th century, there was one woman whose influence made a big difference in the lives of several big-name artists. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In Art Curious Season 11, we're highlighting the lives and work of the women who supported some of the world's favorite artists. Today, we're talking a big name. We are getting to know Gertrude Stein, the acclaimed American author, in the role of art collector. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. truly encapsulate the life and times of Gertrude Stein in one measly podcast episode. She is one of the writers who epitomized modernism, a force of nature both literary and aesthetic, and her story has been the subject of countless books. Her books themselves have been the subject of countless books, so we are not going to touch too much today on her writing here, but instead we are mainly going to focus on one thing, Gertrude Stein as an art collector and artistic tastemaker. Gertrude Stein was born in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, which is now part of present-day Pittsburgh, on February 3, 1874. She was the youngest of the five children that were born to parents Daniel and Amelia Stein, an upper-middle-class Jewish couple who spoke both English and German in their household. By the time Gertrude was three years old, the family, who was hoping to imbue their children with European taste and culture, moved the whole family to Europe settling first in Vienna and then later on the outskirts of Paris. It would be Gertrude's first taste of France, but certainly not her last. After that European sojourn, the family moved back stateside, this time settling in Oakland, California, so that her father could work as the director of San Francisco's nearby Market Street Railway. The family stayed there in California for about a decade, when, after both of her parents had died, the decision was made that Gertrude and her elder sister Bertha should return back east to live with an aunt. It was then that Gertrude found herself living in Baltimore, Maryland, and where she became friends with folks like the Cone Sisters, whom we previously mentioned in a recent episode of A Little Curious. The Cone Sisters, as you may recall from that episode, 
enjoyed hosting these salons in their home, which was a way of bringing together artists, writers, and intellectuals for conversation, debate, and entertainment. By all accounts, Gertrude loved this idea, and later, she would become the queen of her very own artsy salon. But first, she had to complete her education. Stein attended the Society for the Collegiate Instruction of Women, an organization that was an annex of Harvard University that was meant to educate women near, but definitely separate from, their male colleagues. Harvard at that time was an all-male university, but the society's annex, which would later be renamed to Radcliffe College, was open to women like Gertrude Stein. While at what would become Radcliffe, she focused on the study of psychology under the supervision of the renowned, now legendary, professor William James. James ran experiments that featured Gertrude, among other students, to test what happens when attention levels are split between two activities, something referred to as normal motor automatism. What's interesting is that some, including Stephen Meyer in his book Irresistible Dictation, Gertrude Stein and the Correlations of Writing and Science, some, like him, have seen the written results of these psychological experiments as subconscious prose, or writing that appears both spontaneous and more boundless, akin, some say, to stream-of-consciousness writing. This may have been one of the precocious Stein's first brushes with what would eventually become a true modernist literary aesthetic, though Stein herself didn't necessarily believe in automatism or automatic writing per se. Still, as a burgeoning writer studying psychology, she couldn't help but notice that words had meaning, had an emotional, mental effect on people, and that words could be played with, they could be playful. Words could break rules. She would later learn, too, that art could do the same. After graduating from Radcliffe in 1898, Stein followed the directive of her Radcliffe advisor, William James, and took his advice to attend medical school. Not that she wanted to be a doctor, per se, and it really doesn't appear that she had any interest in medicine at all. But James, who called her, quote, my most brilliant woman student, really encouraged her to return to Baltimore to attend Johns Hopkins. And for almost four years, she did exactly that. But she didn't spend all her time actually studying medicine in medical school. She did work hard at the beginning, at least, spending her first couple of years engaging in studies of anatomy, toxicology, and pathology. But as the years in her med program progressed, she found herself paying less and less attention. She went to the opera instead. She wrote, she read, went on long, rambling walks, and crushed hard on the partner of a fellow Johns Hopkins student named Mabel Haynes. Haynes had a lover, a Bryn Mawr graduate named Mary Bookstaver, called May by her friends and Gertrude found herself falling head over heels for May. It was what Gertrude would later call an erotic awakening. But May was committed to Mabel, an acknowledgement that eventually left Gertrude heartbroken, and that rift just happened to coincide with a growing disinterest in medicine, as well as her frustrations with the medical school's overt paternalistic, even misogynistic, culture. When, in 1902, her brother Leo, who was equally stir-crazy, announced that he was traveling to London, it must have seemed like the perfect opportunity to escape. So off she went to London and Leo, and she did not return to Baltimore for the better part of three decades. The Steins didn't stay forever in London, though. 
1903, they left London and opted to resettle in Paris, as Leo wanted to immerse himself in the Parisian art scene, known at that time, as it had been for decades prior, as the most exciting and avant-garde city for creators. And Gertrude agreed, writing later, quote, Paris was the place that suited us who were to create the 20th century art and literature. Paris changed everything, and Gertrude Stein, as we know her, truly comes into her own. That's coming up next, right after this break. Come right back. I try to do all of the things that I can to make me feel my very best and give me the opportunity to work better, happier, and more efficiently. And for me, a lot of that comes down to enjoying my daily shot of Magic Mind. So what is Magic Mind, you ask? It is this little elixir that was designed to provide sustainable energy and focus, but all without the jitters and the crashes that you might end up getting after you've had too many cups of coffee. I drink one small shot of this little productivity drink that's all filled with brain-boosting ingredients, and it leaves me feeling clear-headed and ready to go. Magic Mind contains 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, which is one of my favorites, and it mixes it with nootropics that help me to focus and then adaptogens that help me to ward off stress. Magic Mind was created by James Bashara, who is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has transformed this little shot into the Valley's must-have elixir. And I get the hype because I truly feel better when I start my day with Magic Mind. If you're a creator like me and you need that extra little productivity focus boost and an easier way to get into a flow state, then you should try Magic Mind because you've got nothing to lose. With their money-back guarantee, any first purchase will be refunded, no questions asked, if they don't meet your expectations. You got no crash, no jitters, just that in-the-zone feeling. So try it today. I have a 20% off coupon to share with you, which is Art Curious, one word. To use it, you can go to magicmind.co slash artcurious and enter the code artcurious at checkout. Now, if you get the subscription to Magic Mind, then this is an even better deal because you'll get 40% off with this code. My 40% off code only lasts for 10 days, so hurry up and go to magicmind.co slash artcurious and enter the code artcurious at checkout. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. We try to take good care of our bodies, right? We exercise, we try to eat right, get enough sleep, and more. But just as important is taking care of our brains, just as well as the rest of our bodies. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy, too. Now, there are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, but there is also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I've used BetterHelp to connect with a therapist in less than 24 hours, and it was so nice to be able to begin talking either by phone or video or chat right away so there was no waiting and no traveling to an office where I can sit awkwardly in a waiting room. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that supports video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to go on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and like me, you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash artcurious. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com 
slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Paris was a whirlwind of color and excitement in the first years of the 20th century. It was the period known as the Belle Époque, the Beautiful Age, a term created, most likely in retrospect after World War I, to describe the city's glittery ostentation and its embrace of all things modern and new. And for the scrappy makers struggling to make ends meet in Montmartre and Montparnasse, it was both a curse and a blessing. They did not have enough money to buy a loaf of bread for dinner, but boy, did the city inspire some killer works of art. Gertrude Stein found herself smack dab in the middle of this avant-garde paradise, and she wanted more of it. Not only did she want to live it, but she wanted to be surrounded by it at every turn. So did Leo. So with the help of their eldest brother, Michael, they began exploring the idea of establishing their own collection of art. Michael Stein, at this point, had amassed enough wealth not only from his family's inheritance, but also from his job, as he took over his father's career as the director of San Francisco Streetcar Lines. And when he and his wife Sarah moved to Paris, he also began building his own network of art dealers and artists. Through him, Gertrude and Leo began to know fellow collectors like Bernard Berenson and renowned dealers like Ambroise Vollard, and everyone they met seemed to be pushing them in a different collecting direction. You should invest in old masters, one said. Works on paper by Daumier is the way to go, another would decree. Berenson suggested that Cezanne was really the best idea, and Leo loved the Impressionists. But Gertrude? She wasn't quite sure what to think yet. But she did know that even though they had a family trust to pay for their living expenses, they didn't necessarily have enough left over to pay for the old masters. They had to go newer. Because newer, back then at least, meant cheaper. So they went to Volar, purchasing some small pieces by Cézanne, Renoir, Gauguin, and others. Volar later mused nostalgically about them, saying, quote, The Steins were my only clients who collected paintings not because they were rich, but despite the fact that they weren't. Love that quote. The turning point in the Steins' collecting came when Michael Stein introduced his younger siblings to the work of Henri Matisse, an artist who had gained critical attention in 1905 at the Salon d'Automne, the annual Paris Salon exhibition. When art critic Louis Vaucel sneered at their unnaturally colorful and unrealistic painting, reminding him of fauves or wild beasts. Matisse's painting, a portrait of his wife titled Woman with a Hat, was singled out as especially hideous to most of the art-going public. But Michael and Sarah liked it, and so they bought the painting for the equivalent today of about $100. It was a bold move, but the Stein family liked bold, and Gertrude especially took a shine to the work, and to Matisse himself. She began to collect his works, controversial as they may have been, in earnest. And it's that attraction to the new the controversial, the not immediately liked, that set Gertrude's, and indeed the whole Stein family, apart in their collecting. And people noticed, not the least of whom was another artist just beginning to gain his footing in Paris. Pablo Picasso was savvy in his identification and cultivation of potential collectors, and he saw that Gertrude and Leo were starting to dabble in collecting the fauves, and Matisse in particular. 
And that was when Picasso knew that he had to get to know the Steins. He started small, sidling up to them and offering to paint Leo's portrait in a small, flattering gouache, a kind of watercolor. But it was Gertrude who made the biggest impression. According to Fernando Olivier, who was Picasso's then-lover, Picasso was drawn to what he called Gertrude's massive head and body, and that he felt that he had no choice but to paint her. And, quite famously, paint her he did. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First, Gertrude and Picasso had to get to know each other a little bit. Likely inspired by the artsy and thoughtful gatherings they had experienced in Baltimore at Clarabelle Cohn's house, Gertrude and Leo began holding Saturday evening salons at their apartment, number 27 Rue de Fleurus, which often included organized viewings of their artwork collection. Gertrude also made it clear that she didn't like to be interrupted from her writing and that she resented these unscheduled drop-ins by friends or friends of friends. So their weekly salon event was a good way to make sure that everyone could socialize without overwhelming their social schedules. Picasso started coming along to the salons, and he often brought friends. Fernand Olivier, of course, but also Georges Braque, his soon-to-be Cubist confrère, the poet Guillaume Apollinaire, and other artists like André Durand and Marie Laurencem. It was the place to be seen and to see. And only a couple of years later, the salon became so renowned that Sarah Stein noted, quote, the crowds were so pressing that it was impossible to hold a conversation without being overheard. Imagine being cramped into this Parisian apartment with paintings hung gallery style, three or four canvases high up the wall toward the ceiling in a place lit by gaslight and chock full of heavy brown furniture and cigarette smoke. It must have been a heady place and a heady time. And most of all, the Stein Salon was a place to make connections and to share ideas. It was also a good place to start a good beef. Famously, in the fall of 1906, Picasso and Matisse met each other for the very first time, and they met at the behest of Gertrude Stein. You may recall, as we discussed in Art Curious episode number 39, that when they did meet, it wasn't love at first sight. They immediately got into a frosty rivalry, with both of them vying for the attention of Gertrude, their patron, their matron of the arts. And we can understand why. Over these years, Gertrude Stein was not only blossoming into an accomplished writer, but she was becoming well-known as both a literary and an artistic critic, and an incredible tastemaker. One glowing remark from her could launch a career. One snide comment could cut you down in an instant. She, as much as anyone else who attended the salon, she was the draw. She was quickly becoming one of the most famous people in Paris, and her fame would only continue to grow as the decades progressed. Gertrude Stein was one of the preeminent patrons of modern art. But that's not all she was. There's more to her story, including her famed relationship with Picasso, coming up next, right after this break. Come right back. looked at your business hiring from every angle, but there's something that you feel like you're missing. In your core, you know it could be faster. And you're right. 
so you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they post a job, according to Indeed Data US. For me, it's all about efficiency. So one of the things I love most about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because you get to do everything on the Indeed site. With virtual interviews, Indeed saves me time so I can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. There's no need to install anything extra because all of their virtual interviews are available through your browser. So no downloads, no plugins, no purchases. You can do all of it in one place with Indeed. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest in 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Sign up for Indeed now and get a $75 credit toward your first sponsored job. Plus, you can earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com art to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com art. Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to Art Curious. Gertrude Stein wasn't just a patron of the arts. She was also a model and a muse. Perhaps not in the traditional, potentially misogynistic manner that we sometimes use those terms, but she did inspire Picasso to make her portrait, as I alluded to earlier. In 1905, not terribly long after Stein and Picasso became friends, she commissioned him to paint a portrait of her, something that Picasso had desperately wanted to do anyway so it was definitely a win-win situation for the both of them. But the process of its creation was not an easy one for the subject or the artist. Stein was subjected to somewhere around 90 different sittings. And remember from our episode on Anna Whistler earlier this season that sitting for a portrait isn't necessarily a fun or an easy thing. And eventually, Picasso found himself metaphorically up against a wall. And he said to Stein, quote, I can't see you any longer when I look. So he abandoned the project. And it wasn't until months later that he did indeed finish the work. Neither he nor Stein would know that this work was a turning point, a portrait that would ultimately lead the artist to cubism. His portrait of Gertrude Stein, now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum in New York, is weighty, massive, strong, and bold. It grips your attention as a viewer. And Stein's face is incredible. It's mask-like, and it's mask-like on purpose, a reference to Picasso's growing interest in the so-called primitive works of ancient Iberian and African cultures, which was to become an obsession with many of the artists in his circle. And it was with these works in mind that he finished the portrait, all without Stein sitting down for another modeling session. The completed work, then, isn't so much a truly exact or even representational portrait of Gertrude Stein as she was, so much as one that captures both the artist and sitter's enthusiasm for the new, the now, the modern. 
an interest in breaking some of the rules and stepping away from tradition. It opened the doors for Cubism to burst forth, for Picasso's iconic Les Demoiselles d'Avignon to shake up the world of art, just as Stein's writings would shake things up too. And by all accounts, both parties were super pleased with the results. In a 1938 book about Picasso, Stein discussed this painting at length, writing in true Stein fashion, quote, I was and I still am satisfied with my portrait. For me, it is I, and it is the only reproduction of me which is always I for me. It should be noted that, especially in the case of the friendship between Stein and Picasso, that experimentation and inspiration truly flowed both ways. Just as Picasso was enthusiastically invigorated by Stein and sought to represent her in oils and acrylics, Stein found herself drawing from Cubist paintings and riffing off of them in her writing. Literary historians note that her repetition of words and phrases, how she would simplify sentences and chop them into little fragments, mirrors the way that Cubist artists fragmented and flattened out the picture plane of their paintings. Essentially, some argue that Stein thusly invented a kind of verbal cubism, inspired as much by the artists whom she collected as they were, too, inspired by her, both as subject and collector. As Gertrude Stein became a more confident collector and avant-garde patron, as well as a stronger and more experimental writer, her relationship to her brother, Leo, began to sour. His interest in the salon crowds were beginning to wane, too, and some of the newer artists who sought Gertrude's attentions irritated him. In 1907, something monumental happened in Gertrude's life, something that would have big ramifications for her relationship with Leo. She met the San Francisco-born expatriate Alice B. Toklas. Toklas, as we know, would go on to become the great love of Stein's life, and she would go on to become her life partner, moving into the Stein apartment in 1909. Though Leo purportedly supported the women's burgeoning relationship, what he didn't support was his sister's writing, apparently. And that was putting it lightly. He supposedly used the word loathe to describe his feelings toward her work. In 1913, he wrote, quote, It was, of course, a serious thing for her that I can't abide her stuff and think it's abominable. But Leo continued, noting that art had a lot to do with it, too. He further said, quote, to this add my utter refusal to accept the latter phases of Picasso, with those tendencies Gertrude has so closely aligned herself. So eventually, Leo moved out, leaving France entirely before settling in Italy, and supposedly never seeing his sister again. The split between the Stein siblings had a consequence that went beyond emotions and family they had to split up the art collection that they had spent the better part of the past decade building up. And they split it really based on taste. Though it might not be a surprise, it's still telling of their individual choices. Leo took the Renoir, and Gertrude kept all the Matisses and almost all the Picassos. The only Picasso that Leo kept were some, quote, cartoon-like sketches that Picasso had made of Leo himself. Gertrude Stein continued to host her weekly salons for the rest of her life, and some may argue that Stein's cultural influence, and the salon itself, really reached its pinnacle in the 1920s, when she mingled with fellow expats like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. But that name drop right there explains a lot. 
the community and the salon began edging away from the artistic avant-garde toward the literary avant-garde. Now, whether or not this was intended is a question that I have, but we can't really deny that it was the earlier period, that first decade when she was in Paris, that Stein had the most clout in the realm of the visual arts. As I noted close to the beginning of this episode, there is no way within an approximately half-hour-long podcast to truly discuss every bit of Gertrude Stein's life. I haven't dug deeply into her relationship with Toklas. I have barely touched on her writing. And I'm also not getting into her troublesome and strangely anti-Semitic positioning during World War II. All of that is worth covering. And perhaps we'll have another opportunity to cover more about Gertrude Stein in the podcast or elsewhere in the art-curious realm in the future. But today, I've solely focused on her positioning within the visual arts in the early part of the 20th century. And just as she continued with her Saturday salons throughout her life, even carrying it on during and after the two world wars, so did she continue to collect art. Now, sometimes, truth be told, it took a hit. To make ends meet during the lean years, she occasionally had to sacrifice some works, selling them so that she could afford to cover her and Alice's living costs. But still, she carried on. When she died in 1946 at the age of 72, her collection of art, including 47 paintings, 38 of which were by Picasso, remained on the walls of the house that she'd shared with Toklas. Stein had officially passed ownership of them to her nephew, but he allowed Toklas to maintain them until she died 20 years after her partner in 1967. By the time the artwork had passed from both Stein through Toklas and onward to Stein's nephew, it had diminished by far from that height at which she was previously collecting with her brother Leo. But it's still an indication of her influence, her excitement for all things avant-garde, especially in Paris, especially Picasso. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This is our final episode of Season 11, so thank you all so much for listening to this episode that was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks again to Mary Beth Soya for her awesome work this season. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast is co-sponsored by Kabunki, podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also sponsored fiscally by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, so you can donate tax-free to show your support. To find links and for more details on our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Check back with us in the coming months for bonus episodes of Art Curious, weekly episodes about Art Curious and the news, and more of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful world of art history. See you soon for Season 12. Season 12.